the core cast. Welcome to Shoot the Corecast, the official companion podcast to the RF Generation Shmup Club. This is the family-friendly shmup-themed podcast that uses a bomber as our ace of spades against the overkill of the Motorhead Empire. From RFGeneration.com, I am Metal Fro, known throughout other parts of the interwebs as the Game Boy Guru, and alongside me, as always, is... Addicted. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, RFGeneration.com is the place to go for all sorts of gaming-related information. Uh, of course, the Shmup Club, but we also have the regular community playthrough that, that Single Banana and Ghost 81 host every month. There are forums for great discussions about gaming, and there's a database where you can create a list of your games and catalog all of that. You can create a wish list and have a, a for sale, a for trade list, and lots of great stuff there. Yeah, my favorite part about the database is the fact that it's not US-centric, that I can add all my Japanese, you can add in, like, even when you find that one Brazilian game, I found a Russian copy of Serious Sam, and we're able to get inside the database and market it as my collection, which is wonderful, so that way, you know, when I'm out there, I don't buy the same Russian copy of Serious Sam again. Right. Yeah, and, and there are all kinds of variants and, uh, you know, various different regions, games in the in the database, and so there's a lot of good stuff in there. I mean, I've, I've picked up a handful of Canadian uh, prints, and I've got a handful of European games that I've grabbed, and other things that I've been able to catalog and can easily see, um, because of the, you know, the region encoding and everything, what stuff I'm missing either for the U.S. region or what stuff I have in other regions. So it's a really cool feature. And uh, one of the other things that I thought I would mention just briefly is in 2019, we're gearing up to do uh, kind of an NES challenge where a bunch of folks from the site are going to be playing through a whole bunch of NES games. The, the goal is to try and get through the entire U.S. library within one year. And so a whole bunch of us are going to be picking games from our library, playing through them either to completion or meeting certain requirements for games that loop forever, you know, certain score requirements or things like that. Um, we're, we're hoping to, you know, do a bunch of that alongside some of the other things that we're doing. So anyway, rfgeneration.com, make sure you go check it out, sign up for the forums if you're not already a member, and come see us in the community playthrough group so that you can join us for a future Schmuck Club playthrough. All right, thank you. This month we played the new classic, or what you might call a hidden gem, Steel Empire, for the month of November 2018, brought to us by Acclaim and developed by Hot B. This month we had participants of Metal Fro, me, Addicted, Normatron, Lordboard 4, Retro Schmupper, Square Air, the always great Gollum, and of course, always coming in, Easy Racer. You'd like to give us a little history about this title? Yeah. Um, so, as you mentioned, the game was developed by Hot B, originally for the Sega Mega Drive 
aka the Genesis. Uh, and of course, Hot B was known for the Black Bass series of fishing games, uh, but they've done a handful of other notable titles uh, over the years. Uh, a couple of notable shmups that they've done have been Cloud Master uh, for the Sega Master System, otherwise known as Chukatai Sen. Uh, they did the Master System port of that arcade game. They developed Insector X for the Mega Drive and Genesis, uh, which is a, another kind of a, I wouldn't say hidden gem, but a minor classic that uh, uh, some of you might want to check out. And then also Over Horizon for the Famicom, which unfortunately uh, never made a never made it to U- uh, U.S. or Western shores. It made it to Germany. Oh, there's okay. A, there's an NES port of it. It's not. It's still at 50 hertz, though, so it's not as good as the Famicom version. Gotcha. And the Famicom version is definitely worth checking out and giving a try. It st- sets the foundation, uh, which we'll be talking about in just a moment, where you can fire left or right and does a r- for attacking enemies and does a really good job of setting the foundation and helping to push the Famicom to its limits. Definitely worth checking out if you're if this title interests you, the Steel Empire interests you. Okay, great to know. Uh, and then, of course, um, the game Steel Empire itself was brought to us in the West courtesy of Flying Edge, who is sort of a, an affiliate or a subsidiary of Acclaim. Uh, a couple of other notable games that that uh, Hot B developed that are not shooters are Crackdown for the Mega Drive and Genesis, Palamedes for the Famicom or NES, um, which I just picked up earlier this year, and Devilish for the Game Gear, which is kind of an interesting hybrid of Arkanoid and with almost some some almost pinball elements. So like think of think of Devil's Crush pinball on the Turbo Graphics, but as a breakout or Arkanoid type game. You had me at Devil's Crush. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's a good game. Uh, Hot Beast started in 1983, and uh, then 10 years later in 93, they went bankrupt. Um, some of the former staff uh, who reorganized under the name Starfish or Starfish SD, they bought out the rights to Hot Bees intellectual properties and they began kind of utilizing the back catalog in the mid-2000s, which included a string of re-releases of Steel Empire, which started in 04 with the Game Boy Advance version, and uh, has gone on to more recently, where earlier this year they released the game again on Steam. Starfish also developed, notably, uh, the game Heavenly Guardian, which came out for PS2 and Wii, that is sort of a spiritual successor to the Pocky and Rocky series of games. Uh, and actually, Heavenly Guardian is going to be getting a release on the Nintendo Switch very soon. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. Steel Empire is called Kotetsu Teikoku in Japan, and is kind of set in, I guess what you would call an alternate reality 19th century, um, what you would call an Age of Steel. Uh, it's it's where steam engines are more advanced and they kind of power everything and so it's very steampunk in uh, its approach almost like a Jules Verne type future or near future that you get from there it, those of you familiar with the background with Musha or uh, the last a series that brings it brings those type of images in play where every, every everything is 
a little bit dirty, but you got that you have that optimism that that came with the industrial revolution. Really interesting for a shmup and something that you don't see that often. Right. Also kind of I would say similar to the anime Steam Boy, um, although not nearly as bright and a lot more dystopian. Now, Steam Empire, or Steel Empire, I should say, brought some interesting mechanics to the table. One of the things that the game does that is somewhat unique for a Japanese-developed shoot-em-up is that it has a health meter or a life bar. Most Japanese-developed shoot-em-ups have one-hit deaths, or, uh, in the case of games like Gradius or uh, Darius or what have you, you get a shield, um, but that shield can take a finite number of hits, and then when the shield is gone and your ship is exposed, one hit and you're done. With Steel Empire, you instead have a health meter, and at least in terms of the original game, you can kind of level up throughout the course of the game and grow that meter and then there are options or there are opportunities to get back health uh, as you go along in, in the levels. Life bars in shoot-em-ups are something that some hardcore shooter fans disdain and it is one of the characteristics of a term that has become uh, has come to be known as the Euro shmup. Do you want to give us a little bit of background on kind of what a Euroshmup is? Sure. When you first hear the term Euroshmup, you think, well, it just means a shmup that was made in Europe. And while that may have been at least the initial or the base of the word, it's since become a little bit more of a derogatory term. Most people view the Japanese shmup to be a little bit more of a pure form. And they consider what the Euroshmup or the shmup... Let's say that that involve your shmup would have a life bar, as mentioned previously. A lot of times, it would have a store that would force you to buy upgrades. On there, you'd have different weapon loadouts on there. <laughs> on the shmups forum, someone mentioned. I thought this was a good analogy. It's like trying to take the game of poker and inject elements of chess in it, which can sometimes make it overly complicated to the point of it loses its original intent. And with, with a lot of the stuff that you see, well, like stuff with Tyrion and Tyrion 2000 would come across more as a Euro shmup. And anything that would, these added complexity seem to slow down the feel or slow down the speed of the game. In, in a lot of people's eyes, make it seem not as pure of a single product. And, and in some respects, I agree on here, but I don't necessarily view having a life bar as a, a bad thing, or this as a derogatory thing. I just think that we need to change it to something other than your shmup. Maybe, um, uh, well, <laughs> strategy shmup? We'll have to come up with a better term for that. Maybe I've, At least it with, within this game, I know this game was developed to be easier, more of like a shmup intro game. I found the life bar, particularly with the Zeppelin, to be a big help in learning some of the stages and, and get get through the initial learning curve with this game. Do you view this game as more Euro shmup or in view that Euro shmup maybe as a derogatory term? What's your take on this? Um, well, certainly Euro shmup has has taken on more of a pejorative context in recent years, but I would say no. There are a couple of elements within 
uh, within Steel Empire that uh, the life bar, yes, and then also one of the other common elements in Euro Shmups is, is unavoidable hits or unavoidable damage to compensate for the life bar, um, which I think a lot of, of uh, hardcore or purist shmup fans consider to be just elements of poor design, um, which makes sense because, you know, you you want to make sure that, that what you're throwing at the, at the player is something that they can at some level deal with. Even if at first blush or even after the 10th, 15th, 100th time they play the stage, it still seems nigh impossible, there should always be a way to get out of a situation without taking damage. And so, you know, that's one of the things that that I think is just an element of good design. But I won't say there are unavoidable hits in Steel Empire, but certainly because of the, the size of the hitbox, especially of the Zeppelin and some of the some of the locations, it becomes more difficult to avoid taking damage. And that's also a thing with the Euro Shmup too, was cited a larger hitbox for the Euro Shmup versus a smaller hitbox for a Japanese or Japanese-centric Shmup. Sure. And a lot of... And some of that, I guess, is because probably at the time that, that European-developed shooters were starting to gain prominence in the late 80s and early to mid-90s, that's kind of when the the scene shifted so that the Japanese shoot 'em up scene shifted from your whole plane, ship, character, avatar, etc. is the hitbox to shrinking that down to more of a central point or a cockpit or, you know, something that can be identified as this is where bullets and obstacles can't touch or you die. And so that was that was a shift, I would say, a little bit later on in the in the development. The Euro Shmup is also pretty much tied in with the, as you mentioned, let's say about 92, 93, with the rise of what you'd experience with the Amiga line on there. A lot of people reference like shiny demo scene-like graphics on there. So a lot of that term is tied in with the demo scene in, in Europe and with the rise of the Amiga, especially the Amiga 500 that you'd see. There's some excellent Shmups on there, system and i'm impressed with them but i could definitely understand it's sort of like got that another way to think of what people probably think of when they think of a euro shmup is sort of like an, a game that was developed for dos it has that particular dos type look and something that was created maybe something a little bit i know that Tyrion's brought up but you could also think of like the apogee game uh, raptor call of the shadows right on there that t- type of look yeah, or, or something like Xenon 2 or Tubular Worlds or, or games like that. Yeah, it doesn't mean that they're bad. It just has a very distinctive look to it that you could almost instantly recognize as opposed to something like R-Type or Gradius. Right. Um, so a couple, of, uh, a couple of other things that uh, Steel Empire brings is you've got two different craft to choose from. We kind of already mentioned, but... You have a, a, a small biplane, and that has a forward cannon, and then also has ground-based bombs. And then there's also a, a Zeppelin, or blimp, or dirigible, whatever term you want to use, and that has a stronger forward-facing fire, but is also larger, hence a larger hitbox. It's slower, 
And instead of a ground bomb, it sort of has this almost grenade type of thing where it sort of lobs these bombs and they arc slightly upward and forward from the front of the craft. Uh, so it's it's a little bit harder to more precisely aim those. So yeah. it's a little bit of a trade-off. Yeah, the, the, with the plane, it was a lot easier to hit stuff on the ground with their bombs. And then with the dirigible or the zeppelin, it's a lot easier to hit stuff above you. In some of the later stages, when you're fighting against the aircraft and you always have to take out that middle piece and then all of a sudden you have to take out the guns before you do finally destroy it. For me, the zeppelins was easier to deal with stuff above me and the little cannons above. But in that first stage, when you're trying to hit the stuff on the ground, the Zeppelin is almost a sitting duck. It's really hard to line up those shots properly to hit the little catapults that are throwing stuff at you from the ground. Yeah, um, but the, the biplane is known as the Striker in the Genesis version and later referred to as the Etopirica uh, in later revisions. And the, the Zeppelin was just known as Zep-01 in the original game and then kind of shortened to Z01 or ZP01 in, in future revisions. The power-up system is similar to, uh, at least in the original version, is similar to what Toa Plan did in a lot of their games, where you have to collect three power-up icons in order to advance your level. Uh, in this game, at least in the original version, they didn't say P for power or power or anything like that. It just said EX. So it's almost like experience and it gives it a little bit of a sort of like a minor RPG element kind of, of uh, thing to it where, like I say, you collect three of these EX icons and then you go up one power level. One of the nice things about the game, at least the original and some of the later revisions, is when you die you don't lose a power level. Not in the Genesis version and not in the 3DS and the Steam versions. You, lo you lose any outriggers that you have, which are kind of like options almost, uh, where there are kind of mini blimps or mini zeppelins that will hover above and below your craft and add additional firepower. But you don't actually lose a power level, which is kind of a nice feature. Yeah, it's really nice that it doesn't suffer from Gradius syndrome. Yeah. And then, of course, the other thing it brings is the steampunk setting, which I think was fairly unique at the time. I can't think of another shoot-'em-up that came before that that used a steampunk aesthetic, and there are only maybe two or three that we've ever received that have a steampunk look and feel. Yeah, I can't think of one either. Steel Empire is probably the most uh, well-known. Well -known. Yeah. The only other one I can think of that isn't necessarily steampunk, but borrows from that aesthetic a little bit, might be a Cinemora. Okay, I could see that. The other thing that I would say about this is it it's made to, really nice that it's made to be like a movie, especially with a little, um, or like a, in some ways almost like a silent movie with the way it displays the credits at the end, and then you've got the flickering of the film on the front with a sort of sing-along music intro on there it's really well done and something that would be reminiscent of what cinemaware was going for they would the cinemaware did the titles as its name implies that you try and make movies that are into games such as uh defenders of the crown i believe is one of theirs and they did um oh well, the uh very infamous 
Turbo CD one. It came from the desert. Right. Yeah, and and that actually segues very nicely into talking about kind of the story of the game. Because yeah, like you said, it it really has it has a very story focus um, in terms of telling you about what's going on in the game and why you're why you're flying this biplane or this zeppelin to attack these random things. You know, it's not it's not so random. You're flying this craft and you're fighting what's called the Motorhead Empire, which in this alternate 19th century kind of kind of world uh, basically controls all of the world except for a tiny republic known as Silverhead and you are a member of the Silverhead Republic and you go to attack Imperial forces um, because the Silverhead Republic has been working on a way to fight back against the Motorhead Empire and uh, take out its uh, its dictator, and they've developed this uh, special weapon called the Imamio Thunder, which is a lightning bomb, and that is the the bomb mechanic in the game, where uh, when you set one off, it's it's essentially a smart bomb, uh, but it's quite an impressive deal where the craft kind of throws the bomb up in the sky, and then when it detonates, it sets off lightning all over the screen. Uh, not unlike, say, the, the lightning attack in um, uh, Golden Axe, for example. Um, and so that's kind of like the secret weapon that the, the Silverhead uh, Republic is trying to use to help bring down the Motorhead Empire and essentially free the rest of the world from the tyrannical control of, of the dictator known as uh, General, um, General Styron. You know, it's not much for as far as stories go, but it's definitely more than you get with most of the games. And it does a good job of giving you motivation about why you're just going out there and shooting stuff. It's it's a nice segue and it fits in nicely for the time period there. And thankfully, it doesn't go into huge expositions about coffee and being a military man. Yeah. That certain <laughs> other titles will go into. Right. You don't feel like you need to mute it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and it's interesting because uh, we can get into this in in more detail later. But a couple of the later revisions flesh out the story even further, so that the in between sections are lengthier, not by a whole lot, but enough to make it feel like wow, this is a really in depth you know, kind of story and battle plan that we're going into detail here on. And so it's, uh, it's, I, I just found that interesting that they, that they actually made the story more important in the later versions. It does a good job of not overstaying his welcome, but does a good, but having enough there to get you motivated and understand what you're doing. Yeah. Um, would you like to, uh, kind of do a quick overview of the different stages? Sure. As we mentioned on here, the Motorhead Empire rules nearly all the world except for a small portion. So we want you always start off here with you choosing your craft, and that would be either with a blimp or with the um, flying bird. I forget the actual name of it. Sorry. <laughs> but just for the record, on mine, for the most part, I found that even with a bigger hitbox, I end up taking the blimp for most of this stuff. 
made at least my initial run a lot easier than having to deal with the the, the increased mobility with the bird was nice or the the plane was nice but i preferred having a little bit more health in here as a I'm not quite up to the level where I can compete with Gollum and you just yet on the shmups. <laughs> Alright, well, it starts off on there, you in stage one, the game takes place over seven stages, and the seven stages is uh, interesting place into itself, which we'll get into in just a moment here. The, it starts off with you flying into the city of Rawl to destroy enemies that have overtaken the sea. You can feel it from Imperial Control, which... I, you know, if, if I was flying and all of a sudden I saw a windmill come out and start firing missiles at me, I'd be like, this is pretty interesting. <laughs> Let's get <laughs> out of here. But it starts off with catapults attacking you and then they start dropping little steam-powered tanks and stuff. You know, avoid And then it starts launching these little missiles at you. And you see it going through. In the Genesis version, at least, you, that's when the slowdown starts creeping in and you really start noticing it. Right after the, I believe it's like right after the second the second airship start is done dropping the tanks, and then from there you start following the tracks as you go by and go by and up this slope until you hit the you're going past the windmills and all these little trains until you encounter the big train at the end or the boss train. Now in the Genesis version, this boss train has a big cannon that you have to sort of go up and then you let it fire four shots as you're ascending. And then you can quickly sneak down and shoot its base in order to nail it off before you start going across and hitting the cannons on the top of it. And then you can finally hit the front of the train and destroy it. In the 3DS version, in the Steam version, and shit, I believe it's the same way with the Game Boy Advance version on there. They had to negate the cannon at the back. And so the train itself becomes a lot more aggressive of an enemy. What did you experience in the Game Boy version? Yeah, the Game Boy Advance version does remove that big cannon from the back of the train. And did you notice that the enemies were a lot more, or the bosses at least, were a lot more aggressive in the Game Boy Advance version? Um, I, I think they feel more aggressive because the low resolution of the Game Boy Advance screen means that everything is much more compact. And in order to keep a level of detail, of course, the sprites are bigger. So you have a lot less room to maneuver. Makes sense on there. Uh, moving on to stage two, we have you confronting the Motorhead forces in the underground caves of Lindingel, where they're preparing to mount an attack in Silverhead. Now, this stage in particular, I found, at least in the Genesis version, this is my least liked stage because it may, they're trying to go for this part where, like, oh, it's dark in the caves and it, it's hard to see, but it just ended up just becoming sort of a bit of a mess overall for the first part of it. Really hard to see anything. Yeah, it, it you gets a little bit of muddy um, because of the muted colors and also because of the dithering effect that they use in the Genesis version to kind of simulate that sort of you're kind of off in the distance effect. Uh, I'm sure it, at the time it was sort of like a cool and neat effect. Similar to what you see with uh, Sonic 1 in the Waterfall, if, it, if you're working off of composite, it works out pretty well. But yeah. if you're using RGB, it just it doesn't do any favors and makes it harder to see and harder to tell what you're doing. Uh, in fact, the, with the, when I was playing through the, the my, my Genesis 2 with, through the frame master on this thing, it, uh, it just was a mess. I had to switch on over to my uh, uh, Sony Trinitron in order to be able to see through this part. 
Now, as you're going through down in, you basically with the caves, you're starting out going from left to right, and then you start ascending, or sorry, descending at an angle, and these rocks start falling behind you. And if you're in, in this one stage, I would prefer the blimp because it's a little bit too easy to get hit with those, and especially as we talk about the later parts of the stage, it makes it really hard to navigate. Yeah. Did you have some problems navigating through the rocks and having to shoot behind? This is the first time it's, the game actually forces you to shoot behind you. Um. Yeah, I mean, yes and no at, at first, but knowing that you can shoot and actually destroy some of the rocks, I found that if I can position the, shi- the, the ship just right to kind of destroy some of the stuff as it's incoming right away and then sort of move down and, and weave through what's left. Um, it, it's it's manageable. It, it's a little bit difficult at first, but it is manageable. All right. Yeah, I can understand. If you could get to the point where you get the pattern recognition down, you can make it through pretty quickly. <clears throat> yeah, so once you get all the way down to the boss of the stage, going through a couple more of those uh, slightly vertical shafts, you'll be what's a drill and this is the first enemy if i remember correctly that, that or the first boss that really does a, a pounding of the homing missiles on you it really fires off a huge amount of those yes and th- those you can't destroy they're not they're not the heat seeking missiles so they're not coming directly towards you but they'll go on whatever line you're at and they will continue horiz- horizontally until they pass you pass or sorry pass off of the screen no, and the biggest problem with those is you can't destroy them with your shot, so you have to avoid them. Right, and that that becomes a <laughs> becomes a bit of an exercise in learning how to dodge quickly um, when you get these barrages of missiles coming at you, and kind of figuring out how and where to position your ship in order to avoid, um, you know, the missile barrages. Yeah, it's it's definitely, I would say, for those of you who have played R-Type, and you start going through, and you get you start building your comments, you're like, okay, I made it through stage one, I made it through stage two and got through the worm, and then you get to stage three, where you hit that battleship, and you hit that point where we're like, okay, now I'm going to have to buckle down and really start learning how this game actually works. I can't just sort of wing it right now. That That's sort of the... With the stage two and that boss, that I sort of felt that was a moment for this game. Like, okay, I'm gonna have to start learning how this game operates. Did you have the feel the same way, or you? Yeah, I mean, the first stage, the first stage, you can kind of fudge your way through because, like you said, there aren't there there aren't very many places where it forces you to shoot behind you. Stage two really really picks that up and brings that element to bear, and then yeah, with the with the mid-boss in Stage 2, with the, the barrage of missiles and all of that, you really it really kind of puts you on your toes and makes you learn the, the pattern a lot more specifically than for the first boss. And then after you destroy the mid-boss, it's a, it's a race to get... I believe it goes directly into the race to get out of there. Yes, the speed trap. And the speed trap from... It wasn't too bad, but boy, the first time you play it through that, that is something that is definitely a steep learning curve. I, I died several times on that one during my first playthrough. Yeah, I, uh, 
I don't think it's a stretch to say that the speed trap in any version of the game is my least favorite thing in this game. It reminds me a lot of uh, the Proteus games where you all of a sudden have to go through an angle. There's, there's one with the uh, toilet level. I think it's in the second level of Sexy Proteus where you have to really watch what you're doing to manage your speed ups and know exactly where you're going to be go going through. And that it, it's exactly the same way here. It might be the hardest part of the game, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you're probably right, um, at least in terms of sheer movement and uh, you know precision and all that. It, it's not Battletoads hoverbike levels of, of frustration, but it certainly is not what I would consider fun. It, it's like you have to be in a rhythm, and if you accidentally miss something... It can be hard to get back and start going again. It's like if you're playing Guitar Hero, you're going along playing a song, all of a sudden you, you're all, you're going through, you're in the zone, all of a sudden you miss it. Or it, I guess another way, and a better analogy might be with pinball. There's a lot more in common that pin, to with shmups and pinball. And you're ready, you know the skill shot, you got everything set, and all of a sudden you miss the shot. It can really throw off your game until you get yourself going again. Yeah. So if you if you make a mistake, chances are you're going to take at least two or three hits. Is there anything else that you want to cover on stage two before we move on to stage three? No, I mean, there's. Uh, I'd like to talk about the boss um, a little bit, just to say that it's interesting that that the Genesis version of the game has, of course, the original bosses that were in the game, and as we mentioned with stage one, you know, the the stage one end boss has that big cannon, whereas the rest of the versions don't. The end boss on stage two on the Genesis version is a fair bit different than the configuration that you got in every other version of the game. And I actually kind of prefer what was in the Genesis version over the later revisions of the stage two boss. But, you know, we can talk about that more, I guess, as we go along. Oh, you'll have to refresh my memory on that one because I'm having tr trouble remembering what the differences were with the Stage 2 boss. Oh, sure. Well, you've got the, the big uh, sort of tank thing that comes out, and there's a, a portion of it that will detach and hover, and it'll shoot missiles at you, and then it'll shoot a bullet spread at you, and then there are a couple of stationary turrets on the, the sort of tank portion that you can take out. Once you do that, then the center portion kind of comes up with this multi-level or um, multi-directional tank thing that'll shoot out at you, and you kind of have to get behind it, essentially, and shoot in reverse, because at that point you're, you're oriented facing to the left, so you'll have to shoot behind you to the right in order to take out the final cannon. In the Game Boy Advance version and beyond, instead of the thing that detaches and goes flying around the screen, it just kind of all stays together, and the two turrets that are on there are not front and back, but they're on just the one side, and they kind of shoot a bullet spread, and I don't know. It's The boss fight isn't nearly as interesting, I think, on the later versions, because you don't have to move around as much once you kind of learn it, there's sort of a safe zone in the top left corner of the screen where you can take out the two cannons, and other than moving a little bit when the thing advances, 
so that you can avoid the big cannon on the back or that kind of a thing. Really, you don't have to move a whole lot during the boss fight in the other versions, so it's it's not nearly as interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely... <laughs> Sorry. I remember, definitely played through it, but I, as I said, thank you for that. I I'm in trouble remembering. I guess that's maybe why I don't remember. It didn't leave too much of an impression as, as the stage one boss in there. Now, with stage three, that definitely left an impression with as you make a confrontation in Sky District Zector against a large airship, this is, I believe this is where your ship that you're, or your home base gets destroyed as you're fighting through this. Push on here. I just remember this as being very, very well done and epic as you're fighting this huge airship and you eventually have to get underneath it. And was previously mentioned, for me, it was easier to use the airship in this case, so that way I could shoot in that arc or grenade-like arc and destroy right. the can at the end of it. But it felt very epic, and it felt, you know, very much your little tiny ship taking on this huge behemoth. Right. Yeah, and of course, it's impossible not to make a, not to make a comparison to our type in that sense, because in level three, you've got a few waves of enemies, and then. You have this, I wouldn't call it an airship, but sort of a floating island thing that um, you're taking out turrets and propellers and things like that. But then the airship at the end, as the boss of the level, is quite a quite a spectacle um, when you first see it. And it's, it's pretty impressive. And there are a lot of cannons and, and things that you have to take out on that airship in order to, you know, whittle down its health enough to take it out. So, it's a it's a pretty cool pretty cool encounter. Yeah, for those of you who have happened to play Shadow of the Colossus, it reminded me a lot of the first time that you would you found your first Colossus in that game. Sort of the awe and the spectacle of it. Yeah. Definitely worth playing through on, on all versions. It's done very, very well. Did you enjoy as much on the Game Boy Advance version as the Genesis? Um, no, but again, some of that is because of the lower resolution of the GBA, and so it feels a little cramped, but it's still reasonably well done, and it's still, yeah, it's it's still definitely worth worth doing on, on the Game Boy Advance version. And then after the big airship is taken out, you start taking the fight to Motorhead, in stage four, as you approach the capital city of Damned, <laughs> or Dama, is known as the Damned City in later revisions. This part is where the game really starts ramping up the difficulty again, as you start storming the uh, Gardandi Beach to take out all the enemy units on the waterfront, including the uh, surprising boss for the stage of Flying Submarine. That part yeah. <laughs> struck me as odd as some of these booster jets came out of it, like something out of Just Cost 4. Just suddenly takes air and flies through. So it, this is a stage where I think that the extra health of the Zeppelin really comes in handy. Yeah, it does. And, and, and in the Genesis version, at least, I found that this is one of those levels that that sort of classic accusation of Euroshmup could potentially be leveled ever so slightly because there's one point around two-thirds of the way through the level or so where 
you get bombarded by enemy ships on both sides, and it's difficult to be able to take them all out without taking damage. It's possible, but it's really tough. Very hard. In fact, if it weren't for the slowdown in the Genesis version, I don't think I would have ever done it successfully once. Yeah. And the the interesting thing about this is, as you kind of mentioned there, is the Domed or Dama or the Damned City. It's so weird the way that they did that, because on the on the pre-level uh, kind of briefing screen that you talked about with the little cinematic stuff, the map that you see says Dama, D-A-M-A. And that's what it's referred to in the Japanese version. In the U.S. version, though, it shows Dama on the map, but then in the little briefing, it shows D-A-M-D, Domed, or what have you, as the name of the city. But then in the later, like in the 3DS and the Steam versions, it actually says The Damned City as its, you know, description of, of the location. And so it's it's so weird how they kind of change that over time or how it changes between regions and that. I, I just don't, I don't quite understand it, but I just found it interesting. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. And maybe it was like initially a space limitation. And they said, well, we got to have four characters here and it's supposed to be an evil empire. Let's go with Damned versus Dama on there. I, I, I wonder if it was just sort of like a memory limitation at the time or that was the original intent. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, let's stop for a second and talk about this uh, lovely flying submarine here. <laughs> the, the first time I I fought it, I was waiting for it to surface, and there was a periscope. As soon as it surfaces, I can take it out, and then it took me a moment to say, oh, no, I'm supposed to shoot at the periscope. Yeah, and, and that's one of the interesting things. Once again, a change from the original Genesis version to the later revisions is, in the later versions, you don't have the periscope where you can shoot at it and attack the periscope. The flying submarine just, you kind of see the periscope briefly, and then it just comes up out of the water and starts flying. So you don't get that buildup like you do in the Genesis version. Yeah, I like the Genesis version better for this boss, definitely. But either way, I mean, it was definitely surprising to see a flying submarine, and it's one of the more memorable bosses, and definitely one of the more difficult bosses as it's mobility keeps it moving with a lot of the other ones you're gonna you come down to a predictable pattern this one felt the most uh 1942-ish if i were dare to say or the most random boss right. out of everything that was there the the one that like oh shoot this thing could ram me at any moment if i choose any different pattern sure is there anything else you'd like to add on the submarine i would say despite the speed at which the enemy fire comes at you in the Genesis version. With the slowdown, it's more manageable. And it's also, the enemy fire is a little bit more predictable in the Genesis version than it is in, say, the Game Boy Advance version or later later revisions. And so actually, I find the this boss on the Genesis version, once you learn the pattern, slightly easier than the other ones. That That was just me, though. Uh, no, I definitely agree. The slowdown definitely does uh, <clears throat> very, like in most Gradius games, it's extremely helpful in the game for helping you stop and catch your breath and find out where the patterns are coming from. <clears throat> I did find out that the 3DS version that I mentioned on there, it seemed the most unpredictable as far as the bosses go with the flying submarine. 
<clears throat> something, especially in shooting patterns and in erratic movement. Yeah. And stage six is a final approach on Damned or Dama, scaling a mountainside and finding the entrance to. Now, notice this is Hidden Fortress, but I just. As you're just descending a long cannon, making your way deep into the stronghold. And this part is sort of a little bit where it starts to fall apart in some, some respects. As you're going down this huge cannon to. I don't know. What would you. You just lost your airship or your home base. You're about the only person left, and your plan is to go inside a large cannon and be shot into the moon? I don't know. It, it, it just doesn't seem to flow very well. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, kind of, I kind of enjoyed the descent into the big cannon. One of the things that made level uh, stage six work for me is number one, the, the, the music in the stage is very sort of triumphant and, um, you know, kind of that it's got that military cadence and it's upbeat and it's, it's almost like, uh, trying to pump you up to, to really take on the enemy. I'll give you that. It's definitely not, uh, whistles and drums. It definitely does more to keep, but the, this is the biggest stage where I felt more of the Euro shmup tagline for it. This is where there are certain things that are coming through those big pillars or, um, blocks that have the turrets on them, those are extremely hard to avoid, in my opinion. Yes. And that, that I will agree with. Um, the other thing is, in the Genesis version especially, there are these, there's a couple of spots where when you're flying through or uh, through and around these obstacles, there are a couple of spots where there's these floors that you have to destroy. If you don't have the biplane so that you have the ground bomb or you don't have the outriggers uh, so that you've got additional fire beneath your craft, you're going to take damage trying to destroy that floor uh, unless you can you can position the, the Zeppelin just right to throw those grenade bombs out in front of it enough to damage that or to destroy that floor before you end up ramming into it. So yeah, the, stage six in in the second half of it definitely does have some issues in terms of of the game not necessarily throwing more at you than what you can handle, but with positioning of elements and enemies and cannons and turrets and things to where you really get boxed in, even on the even on the Genesis version where you've got your kind of traditional resolution and and good you know normal size sprites. Oh, yeah, it really does uh, box you in quite a bit. Yeah, this is the first part where I felt like, hey, this game's being cheap. It's not an effort of, do I have the skill or lack of it? This is a, you know, as they love to say regarding Dark Souls, no matter how much I get good, I am not going to get through this. It feels like this is set up to make me at least take some damage. Yeah, it. I, I would say, yeah, it does kind of feel that way yeah now after stage six uh the game really blasts off literally to the moon as you (laughs) chase the mad dictator and take him on directly putting into the motorhead rain the now this stage was a bit surprising when i got to it and i liked at the time but the the more i dwell upon it the less I like it. It's not a quite as satisfactory ending as I would have liked. 
you know, I the background, like stage four, where you've got the little bit of the lightning effects going on or something like that, was nice. And maybe that would have been my preferred way of ending this with a, like a showdown with lightning going on in the background and then maybe showing the uh, the dictator's plane or whatever it is going down in flames. But right. in, instead, it's almost like a sh- almost turns into a uh, space shooter like Gradius or something on there with these sort of egg-like enemies that are coming through. And then all of a sudden, it turns into the, almost a, like a, the end ship that the dictator is in is almost like a Darius type. Almost like it looks like, like it came out Darius game with the fish type shape. Oh, sure. I know they changed that later on, so that way you'd ha- with the Game Boy Advance and the Steam and the 3DS version, you'd have a... Uh, well, the Game Boy version changed the last boss into uh, sort of like an egg or more like a rocket ship to match whatever the, the other enemies in the last stage were. But with the Steam and 3DS versions, the little egg-type enemy becomes a uh, <clears throat> mid-boss, and then you actually fight the, the dictator at the end of it. For those of you who are trying to get a better idea of these egg-type enemies, a good example would be at the end of Sonic, when you, or especially with the original Sonic the Hedgehog games, when you step on the little egg or container to free the animals, it's that type of shape that you're looking at. Imagine a spaceship with that type of shape. Did this yeah. seem a bit jarring for you with the way the game ends and with the last boss? We'll cover into a little bit more of the details of the end fight later, but I want... Want to get your opinion on this aesthetics and layout of this level? Um, no, actually, it didn't. It it kind of fits in with that nineteenth century uh, sort of aesthetic and and look and feel. Um, it almost reminded me of, and this is gonna date me, of course, but it sort of reminded me of the uh, the video for um, a Smashing Pumpkins song. And I can't remember which one it is right off the top of my head now, but um, Tonight Tonight. Oh, okay. You know, it, it sort of has that, that steampunk kind of aesthetic, and it's uh, it plays out like a silent film, and you've got these people in this sort of black and white uh, silent film, and it's very grainy, and they take a rocket ship to the moon, and, and they're walking around on the moon without spacesuits, and it all is very fanciful and everything, and it, and it kind of embodies that sort of, uh, you know, that sort of Jules Verne type of of high fantasy back before, from a science perspective, we understood that there's no atmosphere in space or there's almost no atmosphere on the moon. And so it kind of works in that sense because it's coming from that perspective of that alternate reality where, you know, you just don't know any better. I also thought it was kind of a cool... Um, a cool aesthetic as well to sort of be floating out in space and taking on these giant sort of rocket ship egg things. I don't know. I just thought it was a neat, a neat concept. I, I will agree that I don't think the payoff feels as good for the final stage because it's a lot more uh, subdued than the earlier stages because you're not fighting waves of enemies. You're fighting essentially three iterations of this sort of rocket ship booster kind of thing that has cannons and and spits out enemies and stuff at you. Uh, And then after that, in the Genesis version, you're taking on the final boss. 
and then in the Game Boy Advance and later revisions, you're taking on a kind of sub-boss, and then you're taking on the final boss. Now, the final boss encounter, I, I did think was was pretty cool for the most part, minus a couple of annoyances. Yeah, I, I definitely like the final boss encounter on the Genesis version, and the, minus the GBA version dealing with the Steam and the 3DS version. It was definitely cool to see in all the forms. It was fun to fight the final boss. However, a lot of the problems that for me came into the luck of the asteroids. If, if, it's, uh, if you got a good hand, or I guess this is where the game felt the most 1942. <laughs> it felt the most random number generator. It's like, okay, right. so I got a good placement of asteroids. I think this should be fine. But if you didn't, your best thing to was just to run up to the guy and just start bombing him. And is try and get him before he got you. It just became a quick war of attrition if you didn't get a good draw on the asteroids. Oh yeah, see, and and the, that's the thing about the about those the space rocks or asteroids is you can always duck behind one when the flames start shooting out from that final boss. Um, so no matter where the no matter where the rocks were positioned vertically on the screen, as long as you were behind a rock that was out in front of the boss, you could get right behind the rock and miss the flames. Oh, sure. The hitbox of the ship would would be... And so, yeah, it does become a little bit of a war of attrition in the sense that the, the final boss is incredibly spongy. It takes a ton of fire and bullets and everything to take it down. And so that final section where it's got the the large spread on the top and the bottom where it shoots out the wall of flame. Yeah, it can take, it can feel like it takes forever to take them down when you do that because you duck out from behind the rock, pelt it with a few bullets, and then as soon as you see him looking to start doing that fire, you duck right behind that rock so you can avoid the, the wall of flame. What I was referring to though is that if you end up with a, sort of a bad draw of where they're the it's the asteroid's about to pass through and you're not going to get another one coming through just yet or it's at right the part of the boss you're sort of screwed and you have to run up as close as you can and just constantly bomb him with whatever you got left in order to try and get as much as you can before he starts firing because at that point he's going to start firing off as much of the fire as he can and you really don't have anything to protect yourself against oh yeah see and I, I don't know maybe it's just when I played it, I never encountered a, a time when I couldn't duck behind a rock. So that you know, I I don't know. I I I'll just say that then pro I probably have more difficult. I'm not sure if the rocks are always the same pattern or not, but to me that was the most frustrating because I had a couple times where it felt I was just stuck out there in the open without being able to hide behind a rock. Oh sure, yeah, I see what you're saying. And I think when I first started, before I had a clear understanding of watching the pattern of the rocks and all that, I, I probably ran into the same thing. Once you get there and you and you and you watch it, there's always at least one rock that is available for you to duck behind. And so, yeah, it does it does become a little bit of an annoying thing there at the end because that's the final form of the boss, and it does sometimes feel like you can jump up from behind the rock and pelt him with a few bullets and then you gotta duck right behind again or get hit by that wall of flame and then when that rock that you're behind finally starts to get toward the back of the screen then hopefully there's another rock that you can 
kind of go behind coming up right alongside the boss. But yeah, there, there is always at least one rock that you can duck behind. So as long as you're paying attention to where they show up on the screen, um, you can kind of use that as your as your shelter, so to speak. This is something, the, using the rocks as shelter, something that, I mean, it took a little while to understand that it wasn't something that was as intuitive as I personally would have liked. It wasn't telegraphed as well as I've, I thought it should be, but that was about my only complaint with that area. Right. I did think it was a neat feature. Um, the first time that I realized that I could duck behind the rock, uh, I was kind of like, oh, that's kind of a neat uh, neat thing, you know? And now, of course, leading up to that, uh, I was running into the rocks in one of the previous boss form and uh, was getting frustrated, but I, I understood the purpose of the rocks then at the end once the wall of flames start, started to come out because then I could see, oh, this is my opportunity to take cover and, you know, not have to either A, waste all my, my all my lightning bombs, or B, rely on my stock of lives uh, so that, you know, I can clear the game. I mean, all in all, it's not bad on there. It's definitely unexpected and unique. The boss just feels a little bit, as you mentioned, a little bit too much of a bullet sponge on there for it to be truly effective. And you don't quite get the closure that... Your, the big send-off, or the closure that you're hoping for. But right. it could have certainly been a lot worse. Right. Now, looking at the mechanics for this game, we know that it's a horizontal or Yoko screen orientation. That means it's scrolling from left to right. For the most part, there's a couple of places we talked about in Stage 2 where it's going to be scrolling down at an angle instead of left to right. The unique thing about that Hot B used in Over Horizon and used in this game is that you can shoot left and you can shoot right. The very few shmups can you shoot behind you with a quick press of a button. I can, the only other one I can think of is Over Horizon by Hot B. Can you think of any others? Yeah, it, some of them will do it based on what weapon you have. For example, like Thunder Force 3 and... Well, Thunder Force 2 through 4, at least, they all have a railgun, um, but that's a weapon that you have to select. It's not just a function of your built-in weapon, so to speak. I can't think of anything, any other shooters that automatically shoot behind you uh, unless you power up. Like the, 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 Star, uh, the Star Soldier series, for example, once you power your ship up a few times with the default weapon... A lot of times it'll either shoot behind you or kind of shoot diagonally behind you. But yeah, I'm not sure there's any other, you know, big name shooters I can think of that give you the ability to do that. Something that's it's not a ship uh, shmup, but I would definitely say you could do that with Battle Mania. Oh, that's right. Battle Mania. And I think uh, Gundamonium as well maybe does that. Oh, yeah. The, look for that in a future episode. I'm looking forward to trying that one out. Yeah. There now for the controls. Did you pretty much do? I did A for uh, A for forward, B for backwards, and C for bomb. Did you stick with that scheme, or did you use something different? No, I used the default, which was A for bomb, B to shoot to the left, and C to shoot to the right. 
that kind of felt natural to me because I'm holding the rightmost button to shoot right and then right next to that to go to shoot left so I can kind of quickly move my thumb back and forth on the Genesis pad between the two. And then if I want to do a bomb, I have to move over to A in order to do that. So that way I'm not wasting them unnecessarily. That's the general idea for what I was going with too. I just like to have my right thumb placed a little bit closer to the D-pad and where I was going. I, I, the idea is to avoid frustration such as with uh, the Shinobi games. You start playing Revenge of Shinobi or uh, Shinobi 3 Return of the Ninja Master and, and the first thing you do is hit A to discover what the buttons do and you've just wasted part of your ninja magic. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to avoid that situation where I was accidentally hitting the bomb button. Now, uh, both of the craft, the Zeppelin and the Flying Bird, or the plane, have a primary fire and a secondary weapon. <clears throat> Did you find yourself... I know that you switched between them there, but do, do you prefer one or the other? Do you like the plane more, or do you like the Zeppelin more? Um... At first, I was preferring the Zeppelin because of its HP. Uh, then I started to appreciate the plane because of its ground bomb and the fact that it is more directed and specifically aimed versus the slightly more random nature of that arcing grenade bomb of the Zeppelin. And by positioning the craft specifically uh, on the screen, especially once you level up and your ground bomb becomes more of a spread of ground bombs, uh, you can really use that to your advantage and, and start even taking out airborne enemies with that if you kind of know where those bombs are going to go. At the end of the day, though, I think both craft have strengths and weaknesses, and so that, that's one of the things that I, I, I like about the game is that they're overall they're pretty balanced. Minus the whole stage six thing where you kind of need the ground bomb in order to shoot through the, the floors in the, in the descent down into that big cannon. Otherwise, I really think that they're quite well balanced. And, uh, you know, I was able to play through and, and beat the game with both vehicles uh, doing a complete, a complete run with, with either or. Yeah, I would have to agree. I end up preferring the Zeppelin a little bit more just for the lar larger health store, at least until I can gain a little bit more appreciation of how the plane operates. <clears throat> but overall, I could, with the exception, as you mentioned, within Stage 6 and dealing with destroying the floor, I could see the game functioning or at least be ba balanced well enough that either will work well. Yeah. You know, do you want to talk about the little... Lovely little icons, the EX icons, the dollar sign, the B, etc. Yeah, uh, so power-ups in the game, uh, there are a handful of, of icons to pick up. As I mentioned early on, uh, the, you've got the EX icons that you can use to gain experience. Uh, this changes to a P in the Game Boy Advance version and all later revisions. One of the notable things uh, is that you, you get these by shooting down either a weather balloons or like a kind of a small zeppelin. So when you shoot down the weather balloon, it creates a single icon for you to pick up. Whereas when you shoot down the, the zeppelin, it creates a sort of spinning wheel of power-ups. And you only have a limited amount of time to pick those up because as you're flying 
either left to right or right to left, that wheel or those power-ups are constantly floating away. And so you need to make sure you grab those right away. So you've got the EX or P icons to, to power up your ship. You've got uh, dollar sign icons that are bonus points. You've got the B icon, which is for your bomb, your lightning bomb. You've got the heart, which will restore health or hit points. Uh, and then of course there are one-ups or extends that um, only appear uh, a scant few places in the game. And I want to say that in the Genesis version, there are also S icons for speed up, but that's the only version where, uh, where that's a factor. Um, otherwise, the, uh, the other versions don't have those. I actually appreciate the S icons. I thought they were a nice touch. <clears throat> Maybe it's because I've been playing too much of the Gradius games, but it felt natural to me to have those in. Yeah, and one of the other interesting things uh, that I'll just quickly mention, I, I think I touched on this briefly before, but when you first start out, neither the plane or the Zeppelin have the capability of having full health. So as you gain experience, your health meter goes up so that you can take more damage in the Genesis version. In later versions, you don't gain the ability to have more HP with greater experience. The P icons only power up your, your firepower and uh, efficacy and quantity of your secondary weapon. Uh, the, the health meter is always you know, able to be filled up all the way. Um, so I thought that was an interesting change for the, the later revisions of the game. But we've, we've already mentioned that enemy waves come at you from both left and right. Uh, so obviously um, some memorization is good so that you can kind of know when enemies are coming your way and when to shoot left and right, when to, uh, when to utilize that feature of the game. And, and again, there are some spots, some key areas in the game where the ship does change direction uh, and the game scrolls left to right instead of right to left. Uh, or no, excuse me, reverse that. Uh, the game scrolls from the right to the left rather than left to right, such as in stage two, where after you beat the mid boss, you kind of go through that speed trap. And then in stage six, when you're descending down into the, the huge cannon and you're taking on the various enemies and stuff in there, that's sort of a left to right but in a sort of a downward angle kind of a thing. Yeah, sorry, right to left, but in a downward angle. Yes, you're right. That's all right. Yeah, it's definitely a unique point and something that around the time of it, the Genesis release would have been something that was unique. Very well, very well done. And definitely, I mean, still, when I play this in 2018 here, or November 2018 impressed me. Yeah, it's definitely a... Uh... It's definitely a, an interesting mechanic. Um, one, the, one of the other cool mechanics I liked is that uh, before each stage, you can actually choose which ship you want to pick. Uh, and so there's a, an additional element of strategy there that we can get into uh, in terms of which craft you pick for which stage and, and what's kind of best to use for different stages. 
Sure. Uh, one of the things that I liked, regardless of version, was each one of these bosses felt like a titan. It was something that you were going to have to work at taking down. And it wasn't just uh, in the earlier Gratis games, although it's, it's fun to say and it's definitely become a bit of a meme or cliche. You know, shooting the core and destroying one thing is fun to do. But the, these are taking out parts. You're systematically dismantling the motorhead's capability to fight by, by going after their weapon system these felt like like the bosses and mid bosses felt like gigantic enemies <clears throat> akin to like an x-wing or if it was star wars here as an analogy an x-wing taking out the turrets of a star destroyer in order to <clears throat> t- take it let the y-wings make a bombing run <clears throat> it felt like this was something Get, help give it scale to your attacks. It was that part I thought was very well done, and gave the bosses a, a little bit more of an imposing demeanor. Yeah, yeah, you know, just the, just the ability to destroy turrets and cannons and and uh, different pieces really really makes each boss fight feel like the bosses themselves are. I don't want to say more alive, but certainly more real in that sense. You're not just pelting a thing with all sorts of fire, and either you get some sort of feedback when you're hitting a weak point or whatever. There's lots of feedback with this, because you're destroying this cannon or that turret or or this uh, hatch or whatever. So there's there's lots of... It's a it's a really nice way of a extending the boss fights to make them more fun and interesting, but then b also letting you know that you're on the right track because you're destroying stuff and you're you're causing this uh, this large boss to look more and more destroyed and more and more defeated as you go along. Yeah, that's definitely the visual feedback on that is great. But there's one part there, especially with the Genesis version that I have to mention here, is the audio feedback when you're hearing stuff. It's definitely there, but it, I mean, it's etching close to Atari 2600 levels when this little dink, 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 dink from whenever you hit the enemies on there. It's like, what the heck is this? I'd realize I'm hitting it, but when the, there's such a disconnect between the visual feedback of these destroyed pieces of these bosses and then the dink, 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 dink. Like, I'm not really... Sounds more like I'm shooting a BB gun at a metal plate <laughs> than actually hitting this thing and making some damage. Yeah, we'll get into the sound a little bit more here in a bit. But uh, one of the other cool things is, despite the fact that you can choose which ship or which craft that you're going to fly at the beginning of each level, as you do your upgrades they carry with you forward. So no matter which vehicle you pick, whatever the experience level is or the power level is that your ship has obtained, that goes with you. So if you go Zeppelin on stages one through four, and then all of a sudden stage five, you decide, no, I'm going to use the plane now. Whatever power level you were at, that's where you're at. And if you had the outriggers or the options on you know stages one through four and you kept it through the boss fight, You'll get those in the beginning of stage five, for example. Um, so that's kind of a neat, uh, neat feature. And what's one of the things that, that, for me at least, with the 3DS version, it started off a little bit difficult, but after dealing with all the power-ups, the game became a little bit too easy on the 3DS. 
I mean, with especially in the fact of keeping with all the power-ups, did you find that it got a lot easier as you progressed in levels? Yeah, once you start to learn the patterns and everything, yeah, it, it, def- if, it definitely, if you're, if you're powering up diligently through the course of the game to where by the time you reach the final stage, you are either fully powered up or nearly fully powered up, then yes, it, it can get a little bit easy. At least on the normal difficulty. Well, yeah, it was the normal. I just was thinking a little bit more than stages of... It seemed a little bit harder, but then... I guess I was thinking it was something akin to Kid Icarus, where the first couple stages are... I know it's not a shmup, but the first couple stages are really difficult. But once you get past that initial curve, the game becomes a lot easier. That's sort of how it felt with the power-up system for me. Yeah, I think there's an element of that. Um, certainly, once you power up the the ship past you know level three, four, five, etc., the amount of firepower that you're putting out and your ability to take out popcorn enemies more quickly definitely goes up and makes normal enemies less of a nuisance. And then, really, at that point, you're only dealing with larger enemies that take more to take them down, or with bosses, uh, and then learning patterns and things like that. Which I think is one of the reasons why, halfway through the game, or roughly halfway through the game, it starts to, in a couple of instances, feel a little bit more like a boss rush, because you're, you're fighting more either rehashes of earlier bosses, or just... You know, you, you do the battleship in stage three, and then again in stage five, you're fighting against two battleships at the end. And so it definitely kind of moves more in that direction where you're dealing less with small enemies and more with stuff that takes more damage to take down because they, they realize that you're powering up, and so they need to throw, the game needs to throw more at you. Yeah, I could definitely say that they discovered that in order to make the <clears throat> keep the challenge in the game, they had to up the ante, and now now instead of you're fighting against the, one of them, you're either fighting against two or now the infamous pallet swap that you used to see in uh, JRPGs. Oh, this time it's a magic drakey, not a regular drakey, or this time <laughs> it's blue. Right. And it takes it takes five more hits because it's blue now. Yeah, it extends it without being overbearing on here, but I mean, I, I realize that maybe due to the memory limitations or budget limitations, it would have been nice to see a little bit more variety than the rehash of it, but it's not bad for what it is. Right. Yeah, some, uh, some comments from the forum on uh, some of this. Uh, Gollum says, Years ago, I dismissed this game as boring for having no characteristic features. Playing it now, it seems to me its distinguishing feature is the way everything has to undulate. Or to be more exact, many enemies and hazards move irregularly. Some enemies have a slow vertical aspect to their movement, as if they bob up and down. Some things shift left to right, shooting as they go, so that bullet patterns have a shifting source. This comes out more in the Genesis version. I would say that's the better version, despite the cleaner presentation of the HD version. And uh, from Easy Racer, he says, One thing I think is a credit to the game is how it mixes different playstyles into its levels. Sometimes the best playstyle is read and react, 
Sometimes it's pattern memorization, and sometimes, like level 3 and 5 bosses, it's more about placement of your ship in an intricate position to do max damage while taking the minimum. Uh, Gollum also outlined uh, some strategy for us, and what he put forth based upon, I think, uh, a long play that he watched or some information that he found elsewhere on, on the net was the optimal craft selection for each level of the game. And so it's the plane on stage one, the zeppelin on stage two, the plane again on stage three, the zeppelin again on stage four, and then the plane for five, six, and seven. Now, when I played through the game, uh, initially I followed that pattern so that I could try and at least learn the levels and get, get the 1cc, which I was able to do. After I did that, I went back and I accomplished an all-plane run, and then I did an all-zeppelin run, and then as a challenge to myself, I went back and I did what I would consider the opposite of optimal, suboptimal, where I did all dirigible except on the levels where the dirigible was best, and then I used the plane. What was your experience with this? I initially did it start out with the plane and tried to follow the guide, but I was having some difficulty. Now, to be fair, I think uh, due to time restrictions, I've played the game a total of three times. And on my third time through, I beat the game with using one continue, and that, that I used, for the most part, the Zeppelin. Because a little bit bigger. As I say, it's something that I consider myself a love of newcomer in shmups. I I know the terminology and I'm learning the terminology in, but my skill level isn't where I like it to be. I know pretty much everybody says my skill level is not where I want it to be, but it, it's something that I have not had as much practice with this stuff or as much of a history with this stuff as. I would like to, or I, someone like Gollum would have, or or sure. even with you. I'm definitely willing to try, and I've been learning a whole heck of a lot, but I can't immediately jump in and grab a 1cc on this game. Granted, this game was made for an easier crowd, someone who's not, you know, pl trying to max their score in DOJ every single day. Right. But it's definitely something that you could probably do over over a weekend of play. Probably get a 1cc over a weekend of play. I found the game to be good enough where I wasn't getting frustrated, but worked out pretty well for just doing the Zeppelin for most of the stages. I think I played the plane for the first stage and then did the Zeppelin for the rest. Yeah. And then by the time I got to the 3DS version, the 3DS version was a cakewalk. And compared after you've dealt with the... Uh, Genesis version. I think that was it Gollum who which somebody on the forum mentioned that that they originally went with the Steam version and then went to the Genesis and found the Genesis version to be a lot harder. Yeah, Lord Lord Borba mentioned that that he started on the Steam version and then uh, uh, when he went to the Genesis version later he didn't realize how much more difficult it was. And the one of the other things that I noticed is with the uh, at least with the 3DS version, the Steam version, the popcorn enemies that pop out of the first stage with the little guys and flyers, those are a lot harder to hit than the Genesis version. The Genesis version, they almost fly in a straight line and they're pretty easy to destroy. 
until you get to about stage four, the submarine stage, where they all sort of like come in and try and swarm you, like almost do a, a zub rush on you. Yeah. That one's the one that's almost impossible to get out of without the slowdown. But as far as those enemies are, are harder, but for the most part, the Genesis version is a lot harder than the Steam version. Still doable, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, another another uh, note here from Gollum uh, on the forum. He says, Playing hard mode, it strikes me how important it is to internalize the timing of enemy shots. There's no tell before an enemy shoots, so to use the full range of space available, you need an instinctive sense of when an enemy shot will pierce that space. This aspect leans pretty hard on long-term memory, in my experience. I wonder how different the game would be if you hacked in a 15-frame tell for shots. Most shooters lack tells for, en for most enemies, right? And I, I, yeah, I think he's right, and that's one of the one of the things that makes classic shoot-'em-ups uh, different from a more modern kind of Don Maku or Bullet Hell style is when you've got fast shots that are typically targeted and they are coming right for you or they shoot out and you have almost no warning before you've got to get out of the way, you end up reacting a lot or you end up doing a lot of it on instinct. But with memorization of enemy shot patterns and timing and things like that, as as Gollum is saying here, it really does lend itself to being able to anticipate what those kinds of attacks will be and, and how, the, how that stuff is going to play out so that you can already sort of have a game plan as you're going into a situation knowing I've got to move left or I've got to move up or I need to dodge this batch of enemies and these handful of bullets I know are going to be coming my way or not so much in this game but in other games where you can kind of direct fire uh, you know if you move to a certain area of the screen or you move to a certain spot on the screen and let them fire at you then move away Sometimes you can kind of misdirect enemy fire so that then you've got more room without bullets on the screen to kind of take out the enemy waves once they've kind of taken their pot shots at you. Uh, so that's one of those strategic elements I think that carries through into other games in the genre. Yeah, it's definitely doesn't have the twitch where you're having to tap dodge or make your way through moving maze like you would in the Damaku games. It lends itself to a little bit more, uh, definitely a much more slower paced game where, where memorization or the understanding of enemy patterns will help you out a lot more. It's not as... 1942 had some of that, especially with the the arcade game, but man, that random number generator just gets you every time with that yeah. game. So let's move into talking about the scoring a little bit. I didn't. I don't have a breakdown of the scoring in the same way that we did for 1942 because there's so many different enemy, enemy types, and so you know it's hard to kind of go through what the scoring is for all of them. But this game also does not have a a wealth of scoring mechanics. For some reason, there are big differences between the Genesis original version and then the later versions. You can achieve much higher scores in the Genesis game than you can in later versions of the game. And I don't know why Starfish chose to, to to redo that. I'm sure they had a reason. I just don't know what that is. 
One of the things I found interesting is that other than the dollar sign icons, which are specifically for score, picking up power-ups or hearts or one-ups, none of those pickups will add to your score. Uh, so even when you reach the max level uh, of your craft, which is level 20, if you pick up additional power-up icons, they don't give you any more score. Same thing with lightning bombs. You never get any additional score by picking up bombs. Uh, there's also no no bonuses that I can tell for destroying a whole squadron. So if you have a grouping of, of craft that come at you and you shoot them down, in a lot of games you'll get a bonus for taking a, a whole squadron, you know, whether that's four ships or eight or ten or whatever it is, like in Gradius or something like that. There's no, there's no bonus for doing that. With the change in the scoring system also, the point values in later revisions of the game can get weirdly specific, uh, down to single-digit values or single-digit numbers. Uh, and so sometimes you can have scores that are uh, really goofy numbers, and we'll get into scores here in just a second. A uh, couple things about scoring as well here is... is um, we mentioned picking apart the bosses slowly and, you know, kind of taking them on, taking out turrets and cannons and, and things like that. And, and that's the way you want to approach a boss, especially for score, because you want to make sure that you're destroying every element of the boss. And, you know, just to make sure that you're maximizing that. Square Air on the forum uh, said, uh, I kind of enjoyed this game. After 1942 twisted up my soul, though I will get my revenge clear on it one day, I was quite relieved to find out that this game is actually pretty cool. It's a little easy for my tastes, but still a fun steampunk journey. It's actually quite colorful for a steampunk game, and the usual twangy electric guitar style Genesis or Mega Drive synthesizer is used to pretty great effect here. While gameplay earns an overall thumbs up from me, I don't feel like the game offers enough for more relatively experienced players besides going for the no miss or no bomb. The game doesn't seem to have much in the way of scoring either, so that's unfortunate. The highest scores this game, uh, for this game that I can seem to find are around 4.8 million. And uh, I want to mention that I think at the time that he was looking at that, he didn't see some of the other scores out there. Uh, on the Shmups forum, particularly, they've got a high score section of their forum, and uh, Pericles, who we mentioned last time because uh, we used his 1942 arcade run as kind of the background sound for the podcast, he actually did a 5.5 million run on normal difficulty and scored over 6.5 million on hard. Uh, and so that was, that was uh, his scoring there. Pretty impressive scores. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and one of the things that he noted when uh, I was reading his posts on the High Score Forum there is that, uh, wow, this game was really easy. I think he said he, he cleared it on his first try. <laughs> um, now, of course, Pericles is incredibly talented. If you look at his YouTube channel, he has cleared some very difficult schmups, and he's just a very skilled player. But, um, yeah... It, even, even though it is challenging in its own way, Steel Empire definitely is an easier game than a lot of the other kind of traditional uh, shoot-em-ups that you would you would find. Which, it's sort of nice for it to take a little bit of a breather on here. 
I appreciate the fact that they designed it to be a little bit of an easier game to start with. Yeah, after after the slog that is 1942, it was nice to go to something that was only seven stages long and you could actually get through, uh, you know, over the course of the month. Uh, Normatron also mentioned uh, it's crazy how all how the all clear and no continue bonuses add to your score, and this is true. Um, that's a couple of the things that that do add up for the score is your your remaining life stock and the end level bonus that you get for the amount of health that you have left, and the all clear bonus at the end of the game really beefs up your score. And then Gollum, uh, we were having a discussion about scoring, and he says. To your question about scoring, couldn't you, in theory, counterstop at one of the battleships? They spawn enemies inf- infinitely, which gives you points. And yeah, I think there's an element of that where you can kind of artificially inflate your score um, when you fight the battleship. I think the two battleships on uh, stage five, I want to say, one of them, is, they've got a thing where they'll shoot some enemies outside out of the back of the ship and they'll kind of come down to the bottom of the screen and double back and then and take you on and so if you don't take out the cannons and blow the hatch so to speak on the underside of that battleship right away you can just sort of milk that for a while and and let it keep shooting out enemies and rack up more of a score uh i don't know if that's how pericles got his high score or not but uh but it definitely is one way to um, uh, inflate your scores. Speaking of scores, do you mind uh, reading off some of our top scores this month? Yeah. Uh, on the Genesis version, uh, we'll start with the normal difficulty. Um, Easy Racer, who we, I didn't confirm in the thread uh, that he got a clear, but I know this was reaching at least stage 6B, so he did get near the end of the game. And at that point, he had earned 2,523,500 points. Uh, Square Air got uh, clear and earned 4,027,200 points. Gollum got a clear on normal and got 4,596,500 points. And then I ended up with the highest score on on normal with 4,782,800 points. And I want to say that was my all-plane run. Um, now, I think Gollum and I were the only ones who got clears, or at least the only ones who mentioned in the thread that we got clears on hard mode on the Genesis. Uh, I ended up with 5,648,200 points, and then he got uh, 5,978,800 points. Um, so... Not quite at that Pericles level, but certainly a very respectable score. No doubt about it. Uh, on the 3DS version, uh, Gollum was the only one who shared a score, uh, but on the normal mode, he got 1,776,681. Uh, and the Steam scores are very con- comparable to that, and, and uh, the Game Boy Advance scoring is similar to that too. Like I say, they, they revamped it. And so on Steam, on normal difficulty, uh, Dingo got a clear, and he kind of joined late in the month. He got 1,722,547 points. And like I say, these uh, some of these scores have weird, odd numbers at the end because uh, of the change in the scoring. Lord Borba got uh, 
14 points. I was able to get uh, 1,773,664 points. And Normatron, his screenshot, wow. On normal difficulty, he got 3,109,050 points. I have no idea how he pulled that off on the Steam version on normal difficulty, but that was very impressive, I thought, and certainly blew the rest of us out of the water. That's quite an impressive score there. I wonder if he uh, milked the planes. Yeah, that's a good question. There. Moving on, looking at the graphics for it, although it was brighter than what you'd normally expect out of a steampunk, it still had dark muted colors and tones. Give the game a low, like a, a very lived-in or very industrial feel, and it matches very well with the steampunk aesthetic that the game was going for. Even with the re-release, when it's a little bit more bright and colorful, it still does a pretty good job of giving you a very lived-in world. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, with the Genesis version on there, sometimes, especially with Stage 2, with the dithering, it can make things a little bit too hard to see at times. There, the enemy designs were really well thought out and done. I mean, yeah, they were repeated a couple different times, but they were unique and didn't go, hey, that one's copy and pasted from our type, or hey, I've seen that one before. It was, they were definitely stuff that was unique to the game and looked like it fit the world. The only parts where I thought they improved on a little bit were I liked the redesign of the mid-boss at the end of Stage 7 to fit in with the Game Boy Advance version. That became, was the final boss, but then became the mid-boss for the 3DS and Steam version. Mm. I, I like yeah. that design. To, it fit in more well with the theme of that level. Uh, here, we already talked about the original dithering in Stage 2. And Easy Razor made a comment on the graphics. And finally got to try it out today after getting the Genesis back out. Getting stuck on the second half of Stage 2, but loved the aesthetics of this title so far. And I wholeheartedly have to agree. It definitely gives the effect of a built-in world and something that you would see at a, at a theater right after you saw maybe King Kong or something. There, it's a does a really good job at world building, and the visuals are top notch. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, you know, it's not the best looking shooter on the Genesis, but. For its time, and certainly using that steampunk aesthetic and concept and everything, I, I think they they did a pretty good job of bringing that uh, concept to life. Uh, if you don't mind, could you cover the music? Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the soundtrack was composed by Noriyuki Iwadare, um, who you may recognize as uh, one of the composers for the uh, first of uh, the two Lunar games. Uh, the, the Sega CD RPGs that were later redone for the PlayStation and, and Saturn in Japan. Um, Space Invaders 90, Wings of War that we got here in the U.S., also known as Gynog, uh in Japan and, and Europe. Uh, sort of um, as a shmup where you kind of fly this winged man, almost like uh, legendary wings, but horizontal instead of vertical. Uh, and then also Glaylancer, a uh, bit of a famous uh, Jap Japan-only Mega Drive shooter, uh, as well as Yoshiaki Kubotera and Isao Mizuguchi. Overall, I feel like the soundtrack is pretty catchy and reasonably memorable. I know that I've had several of the tunes from the game stuck in my head 
uh, since we started playing it. And uh, certainly, as I'm playing the game, I feel like the music uh, ebbs and flows nicely to fit the atmospherics of the level. Um, it's interesting because the music covers so many different styles. You know, in the first level, you kind of have this uh, this sort of tentative, you know, military cadence kind of thing, and it's sort of like uh, you know, getting you into this uh, into this mode of of battle, and then the boss music is. Uh, upbeat, kind of has a minor minor key kind of feel to it. Um, stage three begins with this sort of melancholy tone and this real down tempo sort of thing. And then halfway through, when you start to take on this sort of flying island thing, it totally shifts gears and goes into almost like the Genesis uh, equivalent of power metal or something like that. You know, then you've got that that sort of bright, hopeful military cadence music in stage four, and um, stage, stage seven with the kind of spacey music um, and kind of an interesting off-kilter rhythm and and melody to it. It's all very it's all very interesting and and uh, really a lot of different styles and and kind of a different feel throughout the game. Also the map theme is very catchy and I found myself humming or whistling that quite a bit um, because of course you hear it between every level yeah the, the music definitely does a good job of not becoming one one note or one theme does it and especially the uh, original song or the title song is definitely an earworm that I've been trying to get out of my head for the past month. Yeah, and it's interesting that on the title screen, it actually shows, um, you know, the the musical notes and, and the bars and so forth as kind of showing you how you would play the song. And they carried that over into uh, future revisions of the game as well, which is kind of a neat touch. Uh, I don't, I can't think of any other game that does that. Yeah, it definitely adds into the uh, whole... That you're, this is a movie feel that the game is going for. Yeah. like It's almost like this is a silent film, and the accompaniment here is how it's almost like instructions for, hey, guy playing the piano in order to give music to this movie, here's what you need to play. Yeah. Yeah, almost like uh, since some of the, the in-between stuff kind of has that silent film sort of vibe to it, it almost look you know, kind of has that that effect as well. As far as the sound effects, uh, unfortunately the sound effects don't, in the original version, they're not as good. They're, they're very muted and um, very weak compared to the, uh, the music. The sound of your shots is this sort of weird sort of whiff sound, you know. You know, it's not really, it's not very strong. I like that it's not overly annoying or overly loud. But at the same time, it kind of goes too far in the in the wrong direction. The grenade bombs or the ground bombs, they have a very muted and quiet effect. Um, a lot of the explosions aren't very loud. Uh, and so the, the sound effects, I don't know, it's just kind of weird with the original game. Now with the re-releases, the sound effects, I think, almost go too far in the other direction. The shots and the explosions and all of that stuff is much louder in later versions. 
but I know especially when I was playing on the Steam version, I actually had to go into the menu and turn the sound effect volume down because the sound effects were so loud and booming that they were overpowering the music. And so it was way too loud. So I thought that was an interesting uh, contrast between those. And of course, the voice samples on the original are scratchy. Uh, and so before every level or before most every level, you're, you're told, good luck, or, good luck. And, uh, and then there's like a countdown that voices uh, right before stage seven when you launch out of that big cannon that you descend into in stage six. You know, there's a there's a countdown and the, the voice samples are really scratchy on that. They're cleaned up a little bit. Uh, they're different samples for the Game Boy Advance than the original Genesis version. And then I think for the 3DS and uh, Steam releases, they probably took the same recordings but instead of having them highly compressed for the Game Boy Advance, they just used, I guess, cleaner copies of that. I think that we can both agree that the Game Boy Advance, with its um, minimal sampling, is probably the worst version, the worst sounding version out of all of them. It, the 3DS version isn't too bad. The machine gun fire becomes a little bit muted because everything is everything is just so. It, becomes like a Michael Bay movie because everything around, you know, you got explosions everywhere and it just takes, a, as you mentioned, takes a little presence over the music, but even your own shots, you don't hear the ratatata or the, um, the good sound effects of your machine gun as it fires out from the plane or the Zeppelin. That That is definitely a lot more muted than it And I can't remember those... How, what the sounds were for the machine gun in the Genesis version, but I know that the the, the sound cues that you're actually hitting was definitely muted. It's almost like a thud in the Genesis version. Yeah. Yeah, Easy Racer mentioned, uh, he says, on a negative, not a fan of the bubbly sound effect when you deal damage to enemy ships, but so refreshing to have nice, fully composed background music after playing 1942 for a month. Amen for that one. Yeah, the, the whistles and drum beats are enough. Yeah. And Gollum also says, uh, uh, responding to Easy Racer, says, You can say that again. The weirdness of the hit splash noise from Steel Empire is only bested by the hit noise in Space Harrier 2, which sounds like someone stepping through mud in rain boots. So yeah, definitely uh, kind of mixed feelings on the, at least the sound effects. Yeah, not in strength, but definitely not to the point of 2600 bad. Right. Now, speaking of these different versions, since you played the Game Boy Advance version, can you give us a little bit of information on that? Sure. As I mentioned before, the Game Boy Advance version came out in 2004. It uh, was only available in Japan, and then in uh, 2005 it came out in Europe. Uh, but we didn't get it here in America, I'm not sure why, because the Game Boy Advance is region-free. But uh, in any case, the uh, the Game Boy Advance, of course, has a lower resolution than uh, you would normally get with a Genesis or Super NES, so that results in a more zoomed-in view of the action, uh, because they kept the sprites more detailed, so they had to be larger. Um, bullets are easier to see, they're larger, uh, and they're slower, generally speaking, with a few exceptions. Um, a lot of the 
bullets that would have been either lighter colored or would have been different shapes and things like that, almost all of those get converted to kind of a bright, bold red um, so that they're much easier to see. And then uh, some of the enemy patterns and enemy waves change. There are differences there. Um, the graphics are a lot brighter, as we mentioned. Yeah, the, the graphics, I assume, are a lot brighter. And that was done with a lot of Game Boy Advance games, too. If you take a look at Blackthorn on there, it's so much brighter, where the fact that if you're using it on backlit, you're almost like burning your retinas. The reason why they did that, or at least most likely the reason why they did that, is because the original Game Boy Advance was not backlit. So I'm assuming they're compensating for the lack of backlighting or frontlighting there. Right. And two, if you were gonna if you were going to translate the Genesis game over to the Game Boy Advance without a backlit screen, like you would have with a television where, you know, it's all light source, that kind of muted color scheme on the, the Genesis version would not work well on a non-lit screen for your Game Boy Advance. So that was a, a necessity for them to do that. Enemy missiles and some projectiles can now be destroyed, which makes the game easier. Uh, notably, like I said, missiles, but also even in the first level, if you're using the plane, for example, and you've got the ground bomb, the little turrets and cannons and, and tanks that are on the ground, when they're shooting bullets up at you, your ground bombs can destroy those bullets, um, which is very odd. And so it makes some spots a little bit easier. One thing I noticed right away in the first level is when you've got those larger ships that come in from the left side of the screen that drop and kind of parachute down these smaller steam tanks at you, if you get up right next to them and you're shooting behind you since they're coming up toward you, your ground bombs, because they shoot down and forward at a higher angle than in the original, those ground bombs can hit those ships as they're coming towards you, and so three or four of those, and you take those guys out much quicker. So it's interesting that they kind of adjusted that angle there as well, um, but it does make the game easier overall. And Gollum commented on this and, and uh, said, hey, how come lots of projectiles are destructible in the remake uh, are indestructible on the Genesis? <laughs> and he's right about that, because uh, certainly the ability to shoot down all the missiles and and uh, a lot of those things does make the later versions, I would say, significantly easier for the most part. Um, already mentioned that the, the EX icon in the original is replaced with a P icon, but you still collect more than one to power up. And, and in the Game Boy Advance version, it's on a sliding scale. So in order to get um, from level one to level two, you connect, collect one P icon. From to get to level two to level three, you collect two, three for three, four for four, etc. So it's an interesting thing. The Game Boy Advance version is also the only one where when you die, you actually lose power. So you go down one level when you die. This becomes especially uh, maddening in the later levels. So you really need to learn the patterns of enemies and bullets and bosses and all of that early in the game so that when you get four, five, six levels into the game and you go up in level by four, five, six, seven, eight uh, power levels, you need to make sure that you are staying alive because if you're not and you go down a power level, 
you're going to find that those enemies are a lot harder to take out because you just don't have as much firepower. So it, it, makes, it makes the Game Boy Advance version, at that level at least, feel a little bit unnecessarily punitive compared to the other versions. Yeah, it brings back the Gradius Syndrome on there where you're going great and then all of a sudden you get hit once and then you're back to square one. Yeah. Uh, there are fewer bombs for you to pick up and also fewer chances to earn one-ups. That's something that we didn't mention in the original Genesis version is there's a couple of times in the game where you get kind of a swarm of enemies that'll come at you from all sides. And the best thing to do is to fire off a lightning bomb when you've got multiple on the screen because about half of the pickups that they throw out will be bombs. And then also possibly a one-up, possibly a heart, possibly a, a power-up icon. And so there are a couple of opportunities like that where you'll be able to bomb. You'll be able to expend two or three bombs, but you'll gain back that and more and then also have the ability to earn other things. And that there's less of that in, in this version. Um, we mentioned major changes to the scoring system, much lower overall scores. Compositionally, the music is the same, but the arrangements have been changed for the Game Boy Advance version. And of course, they're a lower sample rate. And so the, the music is, it just sounds a little bit, I don't know, tinny or a little bit, uh, I don't know, it just doesn't sound as good as the Genesis version, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't think you'll find anybody who uh, praises the Game Boy Advance's sound chip. It's notorious for not sounding this, especially with the Super Nintendo ports, as well as the originals. Yeah, I mean, there there are companies who have, who have done great things with it, but yeah, I think overall, most everyone kind of took the easy way out. And, and there are changes that we kind of already touched on, like some of the bosses have different patterns and different things like that. You know, stage one boss doesn't have the cannon anymore. Uh, stage two end boss has a different pattern configuration. The flying submarine, you don't shoot the turret or the, the periscope anymore. It just comes straight up out of the water. And so a lot of that stuff has changed with the, the Game Boy Advance version. And then as you mentioned, the, the new final boss in the Game Boy Advance version which then kind of becomes a sub-boss in the 3DS and Steam versions. You played the 3DS version. I did not get a chance to play this version. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, for those of you who have played the Steam version, the 3DS version is pretty much just a portable version of the Steam, Steam version. I liked it. I thought it was very well done. The resolution was more in line with the original version, but made to fit within the 3DS's aspect ratio, so I didn't feel like it was zoomed in like you found with the Game Boy Advance or what you'd see on a Game Gear versus a Sega Master System game, those type of conversions where, in order to make sure that you can see what you're doing instead of dealing with smaller sprites and everything zoomed out, everything is zoomed in to make it a little bit more re reactive on here. Everything flow. I didn't feel like I was being hit from something I couldn't see that was coming quickly off screen. Worked well. The graphics were redrawn as you'd see with the Steam version. The map screen being level intros were all nicely done. The only thing I didn't quite care for, and I think I mentioned this already, was some of the popcorn enemies, like the little guys in the um, floating, almost like rowboats or whatever, the floating balloons at the beginning, the little popcorn enemies. Looked like little hmm. monks. Those are re really drawn a little bit smaller than I would have liked and was a little hard to see and avoid. Especially with the re read-on one, 
the original Genesis version, they would always come from right to left or left to right. In this one, they always come up at like an angle, and they're made a little bit hard to avoid, especially with a smaller size. But I did like the improved sound effects and musical score. I, as much as I like the Genesis version, this came, this one came really close to beating it out. Almost. Yeah, and actually the and actually the the score for the 3DS version. Um, I want to say I was reading somewhere that it got a CD release. Nice. We'll have to find that. I'm sure it's probably like $70 on Discogs or something, but we'll <laughs> have to track it down. The Game Boy Advance charge of powering down when upon death or grad Gradius Syndrome has been removed, thankfully. And the uh, fast bullets have been removed. Now, that's pretty much all that I found with the... 3DS version. I did find that using the analog stick worked well. Uh, I prefer to using the digital controls, but the analog stick on the 3DS worked pretty well for controlling. Nice. Now, uh, I, I put some time into the Steam version, and uh, as I mentioned, I was able to get uh, a couple of clears on that. It's essentially the 3DS version, but on a bigger screen, so it does have uh, upgraded graphics and effects. Uh, the, the lightning bomb explosion is much more dramatic, and, and uh, all the other explosions themselves are enhanced. The pre-mission briefings are longer, the map screen's more detailed, and so there's more going on there. And then, uh, as we mentioned, uh, that uh, Game Boy Advance final boss kind of becomes a sub-boss, and the original boss configuration in the Genesis version returns. One thing I noticed when I was running this on my computer here is I've got a Windows 10 laptop that I was running it on and for some reason when I tried to run it full screen it would overscan uh, and so I would only get about the first I would say two-thirds to three-fourths of the screen horizontally and I would only get 80 to 90 percent of the vertical aspect ratio uh, the top and bottom would be cut off. And so I, when I was playing it on my Windows 10 laptop, I had to play it in a window. Now, when I played it on my Windows 7 computer, I was able to full screen just fine, and it worked without any issues. So I don't know if that was a driver issue on my, my laptop or, or what have you, but just something to be aware of um, for anyone looking to uh, jump into the game that uh, it could be a Windows 10 thing. Uh, Dingo... <clears throat> from the forum mentioned he says i think they did a solid job with the graphical bump uh speaking of the steam version it doesn't do anything drastic to alter the game's aesthetic and leaves the appearance a few special effects notwithstanding that you're playing an original version with the way they managed to keep the sprites clean but still pixelated as they were so at this point you know what what would you say are your general impressions of the game overall? It's very much beginner-friendly. It's something that can probably be maybe a little bit too much to its detriment, but I definitely like the title. I would rate it as something that would be more of a, a, a stress relief, something that you could just play and you play for maybe a couple hours on the weekend or something and you would definitely get some enjoyment out whether you're playing on the steam the 3ds 
or the original Genesis version. If someone were to ask me for an intro shmup, I would definitely suggest this as a good way to get into it. It's not, I mean, it doesn't have the patterns that you see with the Damaku. It's not as much more of a modern one, but it's not something that's going to be balls to the wall hard, such as R-Type or even some of the earlier Gradius games. It's an it's not it's not gonna give you that Dark Souls hard there. It's gonna give you a nice sturdy curve in order to get you there. A lot of the skills aren't gonna be as transferable to the stuff that you're playing through, but you're definitely gonna enjoy your experience and time with it. Yeah, I would ha- I would have to agree. I I think you're right in the sense that the original Genesis version, when you're playing on normal difficulty, is a good entry level shmup in the sense that yeah, you can probably, if you have a, a decent amount of skill, you can probably get a clear on it in a weekend. Uh, if not a 1cc, certainly within two or three credits, you could take this game down. Um, I will say that the hard difficulty on the Genesis original will take some additional, some additional practice. Uh, I wasn't able to get that done within the course of the month, but it is something that I could see myself going back to do. Uh, the Game Boy Advance version, I think in part because of the resolution being so low and everything zoomed in, but also because some of the changes they made, the Game Boy Advance version is a little bit more difficult. So if you're looking for more of a challenge, that could be the way to go. The caveat to that, I would say, is be prepared for some frustration because of some design choices that they made. The Steam version is easier on normal than the Genesis version. However, when you beat the game on normal and you one credit clear it, which should be relatively easy for most anyone, you unlock the extremely hard difficulty, which is insane. There are bullets everywhere and you absolutely get spammed with enemy fire. Uh, I was able to make it to stage two, and that's it. So if you want a sort of Iron Man type of challenge in uh, a shoot-'em-up that you might otherwise think is an easy game, play the Steam version on the hardest difficulty, because it will uh, it will punish you. <laughs> oh, no thank you on that one. <laughs> wow, that does sound pretty hard. There... Now, we got a couple impressions from the forums here. This one coming from Square Air. He says, Always bomb the helicopter drones that appear near the end of Stage 5 and 6, right before their respective bosses. These drones are too resilient to effectively destroy your normal shot, but a single bomb will take out all the drones on screen. You want to do this because they drop a plethora of goodies, including power-ups, options, points, life recovery, bombs and even one-ups you will usually gain more bombs than when you spend than what you spend on destroying them so this is a risk-free way of loading up on resources late game and you should never miss this i agree it's it's one of those things that you're a little bit hesitant to use it's like okay do i really want to use these bombs now or do you want to save them up for the bosses and what you'd typically be using bombs for but here, the risk-reward situation definitely is more into the reward and will definitely help you get through those late-game sections, especially when we're dealing with the uh, 
not the hard-to-destroy floors in stages six. Yeah, I would agree. Gollum on the forum says, I remember this game being mind-numbingly boring, so I was all ready to post and complain. But now that I've tried it again, I can't clear stage two, so I'm excited to get back into it. I'm also surprised to hear the advice to switch crafts. I always figured you would want to stockpile experience all on one vehicle. And of course, we mentioned that your experience carries over with you, which is uh, one of the things that makes that so convenient. There, all right, we've got another quote from Easy Racer. I am curious, did anyone else have level 2B remind them of Battletoads Turbo Tunnel to a degree? I know it's not near the difficulty, but for the first time in 2B, I was instantly thinking of that. And yeah, with a uh, really, really quick, we mentioned this earlier, with a really quick pacing in there, it's really the first big spike in difficulty curve where it's, I know it speeds up a little bit gradually, but then it just goes and goes and goes. And it's so much easier with the plane than with the Zeppelin in that area. But the Zeppelin, of course, can take a couple of hits and just plow through it without getting, so it, no matter what you're going to pick, it, it's a harder, but I found it easier to go through that with the plane. Did you also have some uh, Battletoads flashbacks when you were speeding through the tunnels? A, a little bit. And honestly, the speed trap there in, in 2B was my least favorite part. And especially in the Genesis version, I felt like the, the, the rocks that you can destroy in the level when you're going through there... Unless your ship is powered up, uh, I don't even know if you can power up your ship enough to destroy those rocks to where you don't take any damage through there. And they give you enough hearts through the course of that um, that speed trap in the sort of lulls in between the different spots there so that you can power back up. So it, it almost seems as though that is one of those design elements where they're giving you an opportunity to get back the life that you invariably lost because they made that so difficult to get through without taking any damage that they pretty much figure you're not going to, and so they just sort of give you the health as a way to not make it too hard to to beat the boss after that. And so I felt like that was kind of a cheap way of doing it. Yeah, that was more of a call, and why people might think this was a little bit more of a Euro shmup design, along with the life bar. Yeah. Uh, Gollum also said, uh, one thing that bugged me, I'm pretty sure homing missiles only sustain one hit, but shooting them doesn't always kill them. I feel like my bullets must move so fast that their hitboxes skip over some homing missiles, as if there's a safe spot between my shot on one frame and the next frame. Uh, and this is something that we didn't really mention, but there are a handful of enemies in the game, uh, these small floating islands and, um one of the mid-bosses in, I want to say, stage three or four, maybe, that shoots out these small little homing missiles at you, and they can be destroyed. That's one of the enemy projectiles in the original version that can be destroyed. But, yeah, it does seem like, even though it only takes one hit to take them out, it does seem as though sometimes when you're shooting at them, you're not hitting them, and so it, it feels like sometimes it takes two or three shots to take them out, even though in reality it's only one. Yeah, with those small hitboxes, I wonder if that sometimes has a problem with registering the hit that has been placed upon it. 
Yeah. There, we've got one here from Dingo. It is pretty straightforward, but played well on a stick. I may be a, sorry, it may be a touch on the forgiving side, but seeing as my previous one credit clear probably took me easily uh, Final Fantasy's worth length of time. It's nice to play something while you're still keeping you on your toes for some skillful play, and isn't a brutal grind to success for a change. Yeah, again with this on here, it's nice that we're able to get a bit of a breather after the uh, heartbreaking random number generator that was dealt with with the 1942 arcade and the, the slog through the 32 stages. Yeah, I, I really felt like it was nice to have more of a, an easy victory to kind of buffer that, uh, you know, just because it's so difficult, especially with a couple of the more seasoned players like Gollum uh, or Square Air, you know, either not quite getting a, a one credit clear or or not being able to pull that out during the month. Um, you know, when a, when a more seasoned player like that can't accomplish that on a game like 1942, then coming to a game like this where they can, they can uh, get the clear much more easily and uh, then go back and you know play it again on a harder difficulty or challenge themselves in a way is is a nice change of pace. Yeah, it's a morale booster that everybody needed. Oh yeah. Here, um, again, I this is one of those ones where I, I've heard of it before, I or I'd heard of Steel Empire before and I knew of its legacy, but I hadn't actually sat down and really gave it a chance. And I'm definitely thankful for our choice this month and being able to experience it with everybody on RF Gen and everybody who played along on, on the Schmutz Forum or uh, who, who just even gave it a shot because of the, our playthrough for the November. It's definitely raised my opinion of the game. And I don't see myself coming back to it soon, but it will definitely be one that... I will on maybe on a rainy day or a day where I'm snowed in, I will definitely pop in and give it a play. Yeah, you know, this is one of those games that I bought years and years ago. Uh, I bought my original Genesis copy probably in the late 90s uh, when I could when I found it cheap. And I knew it was a game that um, had been at least reasonably well regarded, but I didn't you know, I didn't know that much about it other than what I had read a little bit here and there on the internet. And I also, you know, didn't know about the Game Boy Advance release uh, until more recently. Uh, and then, of course, when the, the Steam or the 3DS and the Steam releases happened, then that kind of, you know, brought it back to the, the forefront. But prior to playing it during uh, November, I hadn't played this game in years. And I remember... I remember thinking it was more difficult than probably it was just because I was having a harder time with it. But going back to the game and actually being able to get through it so quickly, really, like you said, it was a morale booster and uh, certainly made me feel a little bit better about my, my skills as a shoot-em-up player than uh, a couple of the other games that we played over the course of this year so far. But... Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I could see myself going back to this one periodically. This is one of those games where, you know, if I'm struggling with a game or something like that and I need something that would kind of give me that quick fix and allow me to get through it, since I've cleared this game now, you know, it's probably one that I could pick back up and and go back to and, and 
and get that 1cc in relatively short order again. And uh, in a way, kind of remind myself, you know, I'm up against a wall with this game that I'm playing, but here's this game I know I can beat. And so I can go back and, and beat it again and maybe get that little bit of confidence boost I need to, to go back to the game I'm I'm struggling with and, and uh, you know, just kind of go for it. And so, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed this game a lot more than I, I thought I would. Yeah, I, w- I would call it be, uh, dare I say, uh, shmup comfort food is what I call this game. Yeah, that's not a bad way to put it. There, so can you give us a little bit of an idea of what's coming next for our December playthrough? Yeah, so as we record this, we're in the middle of December. So we're already deep in our Atari 2600 showdown. Um, We decided to go with a couple of real easy, simple pick-up-and-play games this month since we know everybody's busy during the holiday season. Uh, So it's a face-off between Demon Attack by iMagic and Spider Fighter by Activision. A couple of single-screen early kind of proto shoot 'em ups that sort of take that Space Invaders, Galaxian, Phoenix, Galaga formula, and each game kind of puts their own spin on it. And uh, I know for me personally, I've been having a lot of fun with these games. They're both kind of old favorites from childhood um, because I had a next door neighbor with a 2600 and he had both of these games and we used to play them all the time. Uh, so I've, I've enjoyed my time with them so far this month. And then coming up in January, we are kicking off the Shmup Club for 2019 in a major way because we are going to be playing Lightning Force, a.k.a. Thunder Force 4. Um, As I've mentioned on this podcast and pretty much all over the internet, Thunder Force 4 is my favorite shoot-em-up of all time, or Lightning Force. My favorite shmup ever. And so I am very excited about January, looking very forward to going back to the game, especially now that not only do I still have my original Genesis copy from childhood, but it is now available as a digital title uh, on the Nintendo Switch, and that is a conversion via the Sega Ages line by M2, and they have done some pretty cool stuff with it, such as patching in the functionality that was in the Saturn version where you can play all of Thunder Force 4 using the ship from Thunder Force 3. So it changes the game somewhat. And so I'm looking forward to diving back into that one and uh, putting a bunch more time into my favorite shoot 'em up and then um, probably having a way too long episode <laughs> about the game in February then so I can gush about it and, uh, and talk about it because I just love that game so much. Just hearing the name Lightning Force or Thunder Force 4, I've already got Metal Squad stuck in my head. Oh, I know. It's so good. That soundtrack is just too good. But uh, we'll talk about that when we podcast about that particular game. So that's all we have for you this time. Uh, we want to give some shout outs, of course, to uh, Sir Flash of Studio Mud Prince and Bullet Heaven for designing the logo for our podcast. Um, speaking of which, as I mentioned last time, we have shirts. Uh, I'll have a link in uh, on the podcast page and uh, in the description there so that you can go and buy shirts from Redbubble to help support the podcast and, uh, you know, just uh, so you can kind of rep the podcast wherever you go. Thanks to Kogasu for the intro and outro music. And thanks to uh, RFGeneration.com and to the Playcast 
Make sure you go check out their podcast as well and uh, their monthly playthrough. And also I wanted to give a quick shout out to um, Sensei Pong, uh, who does another shmup-related podcast called the Bullet Hello Shmupcast. And he's started that up here within the last few months, and uh, it's something I've just discovered recently and started listening to. And on his most recent episode from uh, kind of the beginning of December, he gave us a shout-out. And uh, within the, like the first 10 minutes of his podcast, said he had found our podcast and, and uh, liked it. And so definitely you should go check that out as well. And uh, he's got a very laid-back uh, kind of casual style, just sort of real conversational, um, but fun to listen to. And, uh, you know, he's he's kind of got a little bit of a sense of humor. And so uh, it's, a, it's a real easy podcast to kind of throw on while you're working or, or, you know, doing stuff around the house or what have you. So check that out, Bullet Hello Shmupcast. And uh, most of you already know, of course, but uh, also check out the Electric Underground podcast with Mark MSX. Uh, a little bit more of a hardcore uh, shmup-focused podcast, but definitely good stuff, so make sure you check those out. Uh, anything else that you wanted to add or, or shout out? No, that would be it. I'd like to thank you for listening and hope you enjoyed. All right. Thank you all so much, and we will see you next month. Goodbye. <laughs>